are live from Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and I'm here with Erin Rowe, author of An Ozark Culinary History and the founder of Ozark Culinary Tours. Amazing. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Kim. I mean, here we are in this beautiful cottage inn That's in right. the middle of Eureka Springs. We just had this gourmet meal from Chef Linda. That's right. Who is she? I just want to set the stage as to where, who, like where we are in this scene. So she owns this little cottage where she rents out these cute little Airbnbs almost, and she has this tiny restaurant where she curates the entire menu. She's med- a Mediterranean-trained sh- chef, and so when you call to make a reservation, mm-hmm. you're going to talk to Linda, and she's going to be like, I'm in the middle of icing a cake right now. Hold on. How many people? It's that kind of thing. Like When you call, she's the one that makes all the desserts. She makes everything from scratch. She's just fantastic and wonderful with wine pairings. Oh, Quite a wine list. That's really lovely. And not what I was expecting upon driving into Eureka Springs. (laughs) On my drive here, I came down from St. Louis, and I'm driving through open um, cow grazing pastures, driving to Eureka Springs. Totally different vibe. Absolutely. On my way to Bentonville, Arkansas. But you and your origin story coming into northwest Arkansas, how did this... How did everything emerge in your life to being such a culinary historian? Oh, thanks for asking. (laughs) Well, I'm originally from the Ozarks. I love it. It's kind of like my hometown. I'm from Siloam Springs, this tiny little hamlet of a town. Very great place to grow up. But I went away. I've had a lot of adventures. I love adventure, Kim. So I've like lived around the world a couple times. I was in Maui for a little while going selling fine art for a gallery. And every time I sold a painting, instead of buying a diamond tennis bracelet or a new car, like some of the other gals, I would just take myself out for a pint of ice cream or a nice meal and I fell in love with Maui Culinary Academy I'd already been teaching myself how to cook for a while just on my own and I thought you know wouldn't that be fun to just go to a culinary school and I did while I was in Maui I did some food writing for Maui No Cut Away magazine and learned about the food writing world and when I came back to Arkansas I thought you know nobody is cataloging our history and our heritage if I don't write this down somebody then we're gonna lose it yeah so I took it upon myself and took a year and a half off and wrote a book about our food history Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I just spoke with um, Chef Rob of Bull Rush. He's amazing. Yeah. Who provided this beautiful connection. And he describes the evolution of Bull Rush through him researching a lot of history of Ozark cuisine pre-1870. That's right. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us from your perspective what Ozark cuisine is. Absolutely. So Ozark cuisine is a composition of everything that's wild or growing or that roams the forest or flies through the air. Okay. So basically, if you think about Ozark's early settlers, which came here, you know, in like what Rob had discussed, pre-1870, and even what my book mainly covers is after 1870, when more things were written down. Rob really dug deep into the unwritten culture, digging through the diaries, you know. Um, I found a lot of the stories still being able to be told by fifth-generation settlers and that sort of thing. So what the Ozark cuisine would be is just what the early settlers found. So we found a lot of wild game, game and fish. Like tonight here, we've had trout, right? You might have some excellent cornbread. People could grow corn fairly easily. The Native Americans that that were here previously were already kind of growing corn, the Osage and the Cherokee that, you know, were in at least northwest Arkansas and the Ozarks were, you know, fighting over that hunting land because we have a lot of wild game. So bear, fox, squirrel, rabbit, possum, exactly, nailed it, jinx. Um, (laughs) 
you know, the white-tailed deer, all of these things end up on the Ozark palate or on the Ozark plate to be consumed, as well as wild greens, wild mushrooms, morels, wild berries, like huckleberries you might find in the woods or wild grapes. Okay. These kind of Is things. Is why it's Mark Twain Forest? That's right. Yeah. There, there's that element. That is a huckleberry fin tail, and that's right on the border. Really so, you know, Missouri. Eighth grade literature brain right there. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'll be your huckleberry. Um, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, what are some of these recipes that have inspired you the most? Okay. So, I would say. I love a fun story behind a recipe. Perfect. Okay. Well, I've got a few for you. <laughs> so, during the process of writing this book, you know, I'm going around to not just, I'm not just hanging out at the libraries or the museums trying to research what's already been documented. Mm-hmm. I'm going out into the field like an ethnographic, ethnographic like researcher reporter, mm-hmm. just like you, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm going out and about to find the story. Right. And so I, um, I pulled over on the side of the road with some old gentlemen that were selling grapes on the side of the road in Tawnytown, which is an Italian immigrated town that probably came about in the early 1800s. And these men had just harvested grapes. They were still dew on the grapes from the vineyards where they picked them that morning. Uh-huh. And I was like, so tell me the story on these grapes. And they're like, well, these are Cynthia, Concord, Delaware, Niagara grapes that we harvested from our vineyards. Mm. And I'm like, really? Do you guys need any help? And they're okay. like, um, yeah. And I think they sort of chuckled like, yeah, city slicker, right? And I was like, when do you want me to come help you? Mm-hmm. And they said, how about Wednesday at dawn? And I showed up at the vineyard, and I helped them pick grapes. Wednesday at dawn. That's right. Yeah. And I learned how to throw the grapevines back, and then we sold them at the fruit stand that day. Wow. Right? So, And those grapes ultimately could end up in any kind of Arkansas wine. There's still some wineries that stomp fresh fruit grapes. We used to supply most of Welch's Concord grape jelly mm-hmm. um, back in the maybe like the 1950s. Wow. So that's something to be known. As far as recipes go, the cornbread recipe is really good. And it is not my recipe. It is a lady that's gotten it from like the early 1900s. Her family's been here forever. Mm -hmm. I'm hanging out in her kitchen drinking interchangeably moonshine or sweet tea. Or both together. Together as well. You know, right. For like four hours to get this cornbread recipe because it's never been documented. So most of the heirloom recipes in my book have never been written down. They're only orally passed down. So somebody needed to measure them. So I was the first one to measure. She's like, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I'm like, okay, Gail, let's measure. And so it's a fantastic cornbread recipe. Um, There's a really great squirrel meatloaf recipe. Squirrel meatloaf? Now, I'm not typically one to eat squirrel too much, Mm -hmm. although it's free-range and antibiotic-free. Yep. But... (laughs) You know, it, but um, the um, we have the World Championship Squirrel Cook-Off in Bentonville every year. A squirrel cook-off? That's right. Andrew Zimmern covered it in Bizarre Foods, like, maybe about five or six years ago. Fascinating. The winner of the 2014 um, World Championship gave me that squirrel meatloaf recipe. So that's what's in the book. Okay. So that one's kind of fun. You can, you know, so there's even an, an old-fashioned cocktail that pairs with it. Oh. Made from Ozark sorghum as a sweetener instead of a sugar cube. Love that. So that's kind of fun. So those are some of my favorites. Also, the you know, the stuffed trout recipe is excellent yeah. in there. We have the White River running through Northwest Arkansas, and really people used to fish it on John boats, oh. and now they eventually flooded it to make Beaver Lake. But underneath the Beaver Lake, which is our largest lake, there is a White River flowing, and the trout is wonderful. So people come here to fly fish all the time, and so the stuffed trout's pretty good. I you know like I create like a almost a um, what do you call it like a like a like a like a smoker in the oven, yep. and you smoke it over all your chips. 
really good. Oh my lemon gosh. in between the skin fillets. We're doing this post dinner. Or I agree. Would have been starving. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so there's some fun ones. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna definitely be into this into this entire culinary history you've cataloged. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I imagine um, part of the tidbit takes the road is unearthing stories of what you see your future, your business from now to five years from now and how that differs from a year ago. Absolutely. And so what has this journey been like for you? It has been such a fantastic and unexpected journey in many ways. Obviously COVID's thrown some interesting curveballs uh -huh. for yeah. all of us in the food world particularly, but a year ago I founded a company called Ozark Culinary Tours where I get to, as a, as a private chef and food author, use my historical knowledge and my love of food and my love of fine art into a guided walking tour of our, Arkansas, our Northwest Arkansas towns. That would include like Bentonville, Rogers, 8th Street Market. And those were the ways I started that a year ago. Now it's, it's changed and the business really took off and then COVID happened. Yeah. And people weren't as comfortable gathering in restaurants. So I've had to pivot quite a bit. Hold on, just because of the ice. Mm -hmm. So I've had to pivot quite a bit to go backwards and kind of restart the business and also reassure people, you know, it's okay. We can go back out into restaurants now. You know, we mask up, but when we arrive at the restaurants, the food magically arrives. We're not having to wait. So in, in every way, it's very similar to the original tours. Maybe we do smaller numbers, 10 or less. Right. And then as COVID possibly changes, then we will change back to what we were, right? But in the meantime, I've been doing a ton of food writing just to kind of deal with the changes of COVID and the, the tours being a little bit less. Yes. But what I see for five years from now is this business continuing to expand to other Northwest Arkansas towns. Wonderful. As it goes along, like Springdale is a great little working man's town that we have that's being revitalized in their historic downtown right now. Mm. I could see myself including the many taquerias and the many ethnic foods that are part of that culture into a great tour, as well as our, our Black Apple Crossing, which is located there in Springdale. It's our, it's our Arkansas's first cidery. So a return back to the apples that made us famous in the 1890s to the 1920s, where we supplied, supplied most of the nation's apples. Not Washington, not Oregon, Northwest Arkansas. Who knew? Right. And so that's why we have railroads that touch our small towns here in Northwest Arkansas. People would literally box up apples to, to, to ship out without refrigeration that would last like three months, like the Arkansas black apple. Fascinating. Yeah. And so we have like Springdale, Fayetteville is our big college town. We still got Bentonville, Rogers, and that will continue to expand and more culinary like, you know, people are gonna come onto the scene and I'll be continually continually like evolving the tours. Mm -hmm. So that's the plan for the next five years. Oh, I love this. It's so I fun. Like, <laughs> I feel like tourism boards, um, economic development agencies, all a business like yours that is bringing that oh, ecosystem together of Thank food you. plus art plus history. Mm -hmm. It's what creates, I think, a lot of connection and community that people are looking for. I agree. And we sense only support place. local. You know, yeah. sense of place. Mm -hmm. So let's like not do the franchises. Let's find the local chefs, entrepreneurs that are doing great things yeah. and support them. Definitely. So what has surprised you about your adaptability? So obviously COVID really throws out this adaptability card quotient, right? Yes, definitely. And so I've I've been surprised at at being 
like if you have a multiple skills in the food world, you can pivot. Now maybe that means that for a while you focus more on restaurant consulting mm -hmm. or catering, which is what I've been kind of working on now. Right. Maybe more food writing because I can do that without seeing a single soul and I can write about food with authority and just do that while I can't go into restaurants or I don't have as many tours booked. In the meantime, it allows me to work obviously more on social media, marketing, those sort of things. I'm definitely seeing more of a trend towards social media and marketing that are definitely part of that that pivot or that adaptability. Yeah. With social media and marketing, it's becoming even more crucial that we take things digitally and online to reach our audience to and to even stories. spread the stories. Yeah. yeah, it's not even about selling. It's about how do we tell the food story mm -hmm. in a different way so it reaches the current generation and the current situation we're in. Totally. So I think really like the biggest surprises have been that we can still make this. Yeah. We can still support local. We can still make this happen. It just takes a little more ingenuity, yeah. creativity, but isn't that how we got here in the first place. Totally. Yeah. Something that we've just done at Curate is how do we have the individuals from who, for whom we are buying for experience products if we can't do in-person tastings. And so we hosted a virtual vendor fair over Zoom and then sent boxes to each person's office or home with a bunch of samples. And so the Zoom was almost like a live QVC mm -hmm. where the vendor would come on and they tell their story and then you were eating alongside mm -hmm. that vendor presentation. I love that. And so it's, it's strategies like this and understanding, one, how are you diversifying your revenue streams, as you just described, mm -hmm. and also how are you best telling the story when you can't it be in that in-person interaction anymore. Absolutely. Which is really hard because it's how a lot of us again feel connection it is like yeah. that one-on-one -on -one time it's hospitality it is yeah. it is I teach cooking classes as well and I've done online cooking classes where people cook from home I send them the grocery list and then they're with me on the, they're with me on the digital version of the cooking class but again I try to encourage them but I can't just give them a pat on the back I can't pass them the food that we've just made like they're making it themselves so it is different people are still signing up for online classes and and, you know, even online mixology classes. I remember there's a couple Fortune 500 companies that have hired me to teach, like, let's make a cocktail for our employees since they all have to work from home. Let's do a celebration. So let's do a cocktail in honor of our company and let's frame it around what we do or our logo. And let's create something together so that way they can feel connected since we can't do a company party. I see Christmas parties going that way this year. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. What a revenue opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just a unique revenue opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's just about being creative. It does require a little bit more work on the front end yeah. to do a lot more research. But right. if that's what we have to do to be safe and for people to feel comfortable, we want to do that. And hello, corporations who had budgets to rent out entire ballrooms. There you go. You have now that budget to spend on a beautiful experiential event. That that's right. Your wonderful food industry folks can help you adapt and create. Absolutely. In the comfort of everyone's homes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I've even seen some great spirit of a uh, great spirit of volunteerism come out because of COVID. Mm -hmm. There's been so many positive things in the light of food that have come out. I work. Um, I do sometimes like commercials and like mm -hmm. and, and food talks with uh, different companies in town that want to do commercials. And yeah. so one of them, for example, is Gann Nunnally Chevrolet. It's a local car dealer in our area. And Gann had decided that he wanted to find a way to support essential workers early on with COVID 
COVID by, and also support local chefs. Mm -hmm. So he hired me to figure out who the local chefs were that could make pre-made meals and, and then he would come and pick them up in his cars from his lot and we would deliver them with the chef to the essential workers and daycares, firemen, nurses. So in a way supporting both people that really have been a little bit out of work during this time. Yeah. So things like that really encouraged me as a chef and as like a food, as a food like food writer to just really like we are doing things that we can out of this COVID situation that are totally. Helpful. Well, it just you being you in this community. I'm wondering if you have interesting stories how you've seen other businesses adapt. Like what surprised you about their adaptability during this time? Absolutely. So one of my favorite bars that I actually do restaurant consulting for in Springdale is the Odd Soul. And they are a wonderful the Odd Soul. Yeah. So a wonderful established business in downtown Springdale that focuses on a heart a huge scotch selection as well as a great beer selection, local pizza made from scratch like they use San Barzano tomatoes and they make their own dough and they're a bar you know they do great bar food but one of the things that they were part of is the pivoting of downtown Springdale to become a walkable alcohol environment where you could take a, a beer down the street like in New Orleans uh -huh. that was something they did so that they could start supporting other local businesses because right now with the COVID rules it's 30 per 30 percent capacity in a restaurant in Arkansas and the bars are closed yeah. so they had to find a way how can we make not just our business in downtown Springdale but all the restaurants and bars that are our neighbors yes. how can we create an outdoor outdoor you know venue for drinking and in imbibing that would actually support right more business and that's and how they've come up with it that's so beautiful yeah and it's the antithesis of this individualism narrative that I, right. I personally feel like I hear so often yeah this American you are on your own work so hard mm -hmm. <laughs> verse what you're describing is this collectivism and collaboration and saying yeah of course it does support their business but it's also about everybody's business yes on the street right right I I hope and I feel hopeful that that is what also emerges from this time I agree it's I agree moving away from just this individualistic mentality into the collective exactly and I'm starting really to cool. see that yeah well if you think about like a strand of, of yarn mm -hmm. it's only stronger by the more strands that are interwoven within within the braid uh -huh. right so that's what's happening in these towns and it's not just per town I feel like Northwest Arkansas is trying to team up together mm -hmm. I'm actually part of a Facebook group called chef Northwest Arkansas COVID-19 chef collaborative that evolved out of COVID because we had to figure out a way to support each other and send each other business and the same thing's happening with these small towns. They're going, you know what, we are actually stronger if we support each other as, as a collective. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I love this yarn metaphor. Thanks, yeah. You, you like are all strings being woven together into a quilt. I yes, we'll a beautiful tapestry. <laughs> so in this also time of emergence, I'm wondering if there are things that you previously thought were non-negotiable that are negotiable now, or maybe the opposite. Maybe you were negotiating things and now you're like, no, I have a hard boundary. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I need to set some expectations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like the integrity of food is a hard boundary that you can't compromise on, no matter what happens in COVID. Yeah. I remember whenever I went recently to Las Vegas, how I had seen some of the restaurants that I was really counting on sort of streamlining their menus, but the food quality was also slipping to save 
profitability. You can't do that. You just have to simplify perhaps yeah. your menu, but you've got to keep the quality because people really need a good meal these days. Totally. And so you don't want to miss out on, on that ability. And now I get it. The restaurants still need to turn a profit. So people just really need to try to support their local restaurants, go out. Exactly. If they're doing takeout only, do takeout. Yes. You know, right. don't, you know, if, if you can help, if you can support your local restaurant and carry out a pizza versus sitting inside and eating it, please do that because that makes all the difference for the restaurant. I think the other parts that have been almost your negotiables that were not previously negotiable, well, obviously it's negotiable how we dine, right? We've got to be, we've got to be comfortable dining in a new way. Whether that, Ooh, I like this. right, right. So as consumers, as consumers, we've got to adjust too. We can't just see, expect the restaurants to adjust to us because they're under state and national mandates. They have to abide by. They, of course, they would love to be back at fifty percent or one hundred percent capacity. Who oh, wouldn't? Of course, they need to turn those tables. They sure do. And so you're seeing restaurants that are that are kind enough to accommodate outdoor dining. People have to become comfortable with outdoor dining. They need to become comfortable with. Yes, we have to wear the mask whenever we go in, but once we sit down and we can take it off, there's elements of the menus are going to change. The menus are going to be limited. Right. We, we, we have to understand that they're trying to do the best they can and really support that effort. That seasonality maybe, that smaller menu, that streamlined menu, maybe they don't have the hamburger that we're used to. We've got to try a new hamburger. You know, at the end of the day, we still need to support um, the restaurants. So as consumers, we need to be willing to not to adjust our expectations as yeah. to what restaurants can provide. And it's, not be so, I don't know, demanding. It's right. like, this is also a relationship. And it is. that business owner is trying to, their hardest to make sure it's a safe and trusting environment. Exactly. And that needs to be acknowledged. Right. And yeah. so if we fixate on what we're used to and what we've always had and what we want and we don't pivot ourselves as consumers, what happens next? Maybe we, maybe we don't go to that restaurant and then that puts that restaurant out of business. The restaurant shouldn't be penalized for COVID. Yeah, exactly. And in the same way, we all are having to adjust. We all have to adjust what we what we eat, and we have to adjust the way we order. It's the same thing I talk about, like in my book that I wrote in the final chapter. What is the future of Ozark cuisine? I address the issue of people wanting to buy things from farmers markets, wanting to see locally sourced and hyper seasonal menus, but not being able to adjust to having a hamburger in the winter that doesn't have a tomato. Tomatoes are not harvested naturally in the winter. You've got to adjust the way you order you can't just say I want farmers market because farmers market means it is hyper seasonal totally so you need to adjust what you expect based upon the season yes Whew. do I think we all need to cut back into that rhythm oh I do too yes absolutely and it would be so good for all of us so good for all of us and it just builds also Having the sameness all the time, I think, creates stagnation and complacency. Right. And so seasonality keeps you remembering the, for me at least, the like resiliency of nature. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, as an East Coast gal, I love the change of seasons and what each moment in time that brings for my own life. Absolutely. And like the moments of reflection or growth that, again, you're just seeing the the autumnal colors mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in the trees as I'm driving here today <laughs> like it evokes a completely new feeling than the summer air does so anyways it does and food should reflect that as well it should be exactly. fun 
food should not always be the same every time. Exactly. Especially when you're doing restaurant dining, right. you know. Maybe when you're doing, you know, sort of like quick casual or fast fast food, mm-hmm. right, a more of a franchise perspective, you're going to expect the same things pretty consistently. Yeah. But I think that we are healthier as people. We save money with shipping, and it's better for the environment. If we eat hyper-seasonal, there's just so many benefits. Absolutely. We need variety in our diet, let's be honest. Oh, we yeah. always do. We'll get bored. We will get bored. And unhealthy. <laughs> we don't want that. No. Especially with the COVID-19. Many people have gained that COVID-19. Oh, I know. Eating, eating healthy again will bring it bring it back off. Mm-hmm. We need to get out of our homes yeah. and, you know, get back into wherever we feel comfortable. But we definitely need to support those local restaurants. For American sure. was built on entrepreneurism. We need to bring it back. I, yes, love that. <laughs> so if anyone wants to find you on the internet, right. buy your book, come to a cooking class, any of the above, how how can people find you? I'm on Facebook and Instagram under Aaron Rowe or Chef Aaron Rowe. I'm also under Ozark Culinary Tours. My website is www.ozarkculinarytours.com. Wonderful. And it's E-R-I-N-R-O-W-E. Nailed it. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> Did you know that the tidbit is derived from a bi-weekly newsletter that we send out at Curate? In it, we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning. Five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. Head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E dot co to sign up. Also, we would love if more listeners like you could find out about the tidbit. Our mission at Curate includes the sharing of education and access to resources, And the best way to reach more folks like you is to leave a review on iTunes. Seriously, head over and let us know what tidbit of knowledge resonated with you. Until next time, remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally.